Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 157 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline, and we're back with you again to break down what we saw in week six of the college football season, and also to take a deep dive into week seven's matchup between Alabama and Georgia. And speaking of the SEC, it took three weeks, but we have a couple postponed week seven games in the conference with Florida shutting down the program altogether, and Vanderbilt not being able to field half a roster due to COVID-19 protocols. Baylor-Oklahoma State has also been postponed. The third game Baylor has pushed back this year. But overall, just like the NFL, the show has gone on with some adjustments. The NFL is even considering adding a week to the regular season schedule. And while the break before bowl games makes that less necessary for college football, there are also even more moving parts with all the extra teams. But besides what we already know, Tony, is there any insight you can provide as to what the final portion of the season may look like if we continue to have a handful of postponements every week. No, I, I guess the question is, you know, th- these teams want to get their seasons in uh, by the time and the conference title games in and played by the time that the committee picks the final four. Now, if we still have, if we have, uh, you know, postponements, uh, uh, suspensions of games down the road from some of the major teams, I mean, we saw today that Nick Saban uh, is tested positive with his first test for COVID-19. If Alabama, say, has to cancel a couple of games, do they push those conference title games back a week or two? And does the uh, committee that picks the final four, the semifinal and the title games, would they be willing to push back their decisions? Especially, you know, with the Big 12 uh, still to start their season. The Big 12 starts their season, I believe, a week from tomorrow night. So it'll be interesting. I mean – you knew something like this could potentially happen. And the fact that they're adjusting and making amends, if you will, allowing teams to readjust schedules, I think is a good thing, but I think it's a fluid situation. Absolutely. And we'll get fluidly into today's show in just a moment after this word from our sponsor. As listeners of this show can attest football is back and it appears like it's here to stay. And while you may not be at the game this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. If you had Bill O'Brien as the first NFL coach fired, good for you. Adam Gase of our New York Jets is the current favorite with Dan Quinn also ousted in Atlanta. Also a favorite, under 5.5 wins combined for the Jets and the Giants. That's a little bit low, but uh, I mean, the way they played the first five weeks of the season, and, and I got to wonder, what the I can only imagine what the odds were for Bill O'Brien being the first head coach fired this season. Those had to be some pretty huge odds in the favor of the better. Certainly a nice hit if you had it. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, as mentioned already, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all those great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. 
Now, we'll start today's show with the NFL. Last week, we discussed what the Jets should do if they had the number one overall pick, and obviously Trevor Lawrence was on the board. We'll have more on Lawrence specifically and his performance against Miami in a little bit. But over the weekend, Adam Schefter wrote an article over at ESPN saying that the Jets were unlikely to get a first-round draft pick if they traded Sam Darnold and selected Trevor Lawrence. Obviously, a plethora of reasons behind them not getting that first-round pick. They all make sense. But, Tony, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was ever ever a consideration that the Jets would get a first-round pick uh, for Sam Darnold if they, uh, if they traded him. Uh, there are some people in the league who think he's worth a first-round pick. But, you know, you're not going to pay you're not going uh, to pay five dollars for a gallon of milk when you can get it for three dollars. If you see my my uh, analogy there, I mean, the fact is, who would give up a first round pick for Sam Darnold? Maybe the New Orleans Saints, if they win the Super Bowl, maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers, if they win the Super Bowl or a team that's drafting really deep. Uh, in the first round and wants to get their potential quarterback of the future. I think there are a lot of teams that could uh, surrender a second round pick for Sam Darnold. One of them being the Indianapolis Colts, because they're eventually going to need their quarterback of the future. And how ironic would it be if hypothetically the Indianapolis Colts gave up a second round pick for Sam Darnold, the Indianapolis Colts, the team that's, you know, uh, got a ton of picks from the New York jets uh, in that draft, just to move down three spots uh, so the Jets could move up and get Sam Darnold. Uh, they, they, they walk away with, with Darnold, at quarterback, and their future Hall of Fame guard, who they selected with that sixth pick in the draft. Yeah, I mean, they got two second-round picks from the Jets in that deal. So essentially, you just wash out one of those twos in Sam Darnold, and you have the Colts with, uh, you know, as you said, a Hall of Fame guard in Quentin Nelson, plus more draft picks, essentially for free. So obviously, that would be you know a great situation for Indianapolis, assuming, again, that Darnold uh, can hit his potential um, you know, the other kind of issue here is Sam Darnold is not Josh Rosen in the sense that this will be two years after Josh Rosen was traded for a two and a five. Obviously, Darnold has shown a bit more on the field than Rosen, but that rookie contract has all been over. His fifth year option is worth almost $25 million, and a team would have to pick that up if they traded for him without seeing him actually play it down, even in practice. So, the idea of a first round pick was always kind of something that just really wasn't realistic. I mean, even a second round pick, if the team has to give up a second round pick and pay $24 million for a guy, say in the case of the Steelers, um, you know, Ben Roethlisberger is not a lock to retire after this season. Drew Brees probably is in new Orleans. So it'd be a different scenario there, but I mean, that's a lot of money in addition to the draft capital. It, it is. But if you think Darnold is worth it, then you go for it. And I mean, listen, who better to mentor and coach uh, Darnold than a guy like Frank Reich, who's done a terrific job out there in Indianapolis. Obviously, this is all speculation at this point in time, uh, but it's something that I think you're going to hear a lot more talk about as we move through the months of uh, November, December, and January. Now, for more speculation on today's show, this week's For the Record, coming at the beginning of the show, as you may notice, instead of the end, we'll focus on what might happen a few picks later in next year's draft. The Washington football team right now slated to pick number five overall. Obviously, that's most likely to change by the end of the season, but we're working in hypotheticals here. Work with us. Dwayne Haskins has already been benched. Kyle Allen and Alex Smith aren't long-term answers at the position. So let's just say Washington's picking five. Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields are off the board. Panay Sewell, the left tackle from Oregon, also gone. Do the Redskins take a leap and 
pick North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance at number five, or do they grab a dynamic playmaker like Jamar Chase, who most likely is going to be the top player on the board at that junction in the draft? Currently, our partners over at Bet Online have a Haskins trade as an extremely unlikely event and dead even odds on the football team going quarterback in round one. So, Tony, break the tie for us. Who would you take and why? I know the vast majority of the sentiment is to take Trey Lance, the quarterback. But I'm going to say take Jamar Chase for a couple of reasons. You know, I agree with Ron Rivera when he says part of the problem with Dwayne Haskins is he really hasn't played much football. And when you look at many of the first round busts or guys that haven't lived up to expectations, Dwayne Haskins, uh, Mitch Trubinsky, you can go back to New York Jets, Mark Sanchez. I mean, these are all guys that were just one year starters on the college football field. Now, Lance is going to be a one year starter in part due to no fault of his own because of the fact that we had the, the pandemic and his college team played a single game this year. But Lance really scares me. And I don't know that, uh, you know, when you look at it from a body of work point of view and an array of different factors, you're, mu- you're that much better off with Lance. And with a dynamic playmaker like Jamar Chase, Washington fills a position of need with an outstanding player from a program that has a history of putting receivers into the league that are better NFL players than they are in the college level. So while I know that the quarterback is a sexy position, it's the position of need, it's the position that everything evolves around. I think in this case, when you look at Ron Rivera, you, you look at basically his history, what he likes. I am in agreement with him. I think a guy like Lance has just got too much risk to take that early uh, in the draft, no matter how badly you need a quarterback. And when you pair him up against a guy like Chase, who isn't a slam dunk, can't miss, but has everything going for him, I'm going with the receiver. Too much risk for a guy with the nickname Riverboat Ron. That's that's always fun. But um, I, I do agree with you that Jamar Chase is the better prospect. Um, I will make the case here for Trey Lance, just based on something you alluded to, and that's obviously quarterback. Maybe not that that is the sexy position, but the fact of the matter remains that if you have an average starter at the quarterback position, you might be able to argue, and the salary cap would probably argue with you uh, or agree with you as well, that that player has more impact on the game than a top 10 wide receiver. Now, unless we look at Jamar Chase and we say, you know, this guy can be the best receiver in the league at some point, which I mean, it's certainly possible. His upside is certainly through the roof. So I'm not going to say, you know, for the record that Jamar Chase can't be one of, if not the best receiver in football, I think it'd be unlikely, but it's certainly possible. That being said, if he's just, you know, in that 12 to 15 range, um, you know, which when you draft a receiver in the top five, that's the floor of what you want them to be. Uh, you want that wide receiver to be essentially a true alpha. And I'm not saying Jamar Chase can't be that, but when you have the opportunity to select a quarterback with the upside that Trey Lance has, and a lot of it may be theoretical upside. Again, you mentioned we haven't seen him play and first round busts are littered with inexperienced quarterbacks. You know, game started tends to actually be a pretty good statistic if you're looking at, you know, potential quarterback success in the NFL game started in college, the guys that have done it, the guys with the most experience, they tend to succeed. Um, on the other hand, if you take Trey Lance and within two years, you realize he's not the answer. 
Well, you're likely the Jets right now, and you're picking top of the draft again. And yes, it can be a never-ending cycle, but the downside of these high quarterback picks uh, becoming busts is a lot less since they don't get paid the astronomical numbers that they used to have. Um, you know, I, I do think Chase is the better prospect, but I think there you know, is a lot in that case to be made for Trey Lanch just based on if you believe his upside is that of a top 10 or top half of the league starter, you kind of have to go with that with no other answer at the position, assuming that's how they feel about Dwayne Haskins. I, I mean, yes, you can absorb a first round bust, especially an early first round bust much easier these days than you can in the past. But if you get into that circle where you keep, you keep drafting early at one position and it doesn't pan out, uh, it, it, it's not a good thing. And, you know, Lance did play last year and he played very well. There's no doubt about it. He's a very athletic quarterback. He's got a big time arm. He's very mobile. He's an exciting guy to watch, but the one year starting experience really scares me. Not only just one year starting experience, one year starting experience on, on a one double a level. Um, which again, it's not his fault. He would have been starting, would have been playing the season were it not for the pandemic, but it is what it is. And uh, just that lack of body of work for any quarterback really, really uh, kind of sit, sit with, as far as my mind, not a red flag, but it's something you've got to really evaluate. Now we'll move back to the college field here with a look at week six. We already mentioned Trevor Lawrence on this show. Get used to it. We'll probably be talking about him a lot this year. So we'll start with Clemson's 42-17 win over Miami and specifically how Lawrence handled Miami's pressure up front. And I'd say he did pretty well. 29 to 41, 292 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, 34 yards on the ground and a touchdown as well. Took just one sack, but he did get hit a lot. He was down for a bit at one point, but shortly after that came back into the game, rushed for a touchdown on a play where he took another pretty big hit. And he responded with a spike that ended up getting a, a celebration penalty from the refs. I don't care about that penalty. I love to see that. Obviously, he's, you know, he says that he gets amped from being hit and that he relishes it and he likes it. And, and that's what you want to see in your quarterback, a guy there that's, you know what, you're going to hit me hard. Fine. I'm going to get in the end zone and I'm going to throw it right back at you. Uh, so really, Lawrence here just keeps rolling along without displaying much reason for concern. He's holding up pretty well when he's getting hit as well. Another thing you love to see is Travis Etienne. Now, he was a good player before this season, but he just seems like a better player in 2020. He's improved his receiving as he's done incrementally every year that he's been at Clemson. That long touchdown run where he didn't get knocked out of bounds running along the sideline, um, you know, he's just a horse, a straight line speed, can provide big plays, also does it as a receiver. He did it last year. He's doing it this year. For him, it's kind of a shame that we're watching him take some extra hits and some extra punishment on the college field instead of the NFL after he returned to school this year, but he does look quite improved and it's still fun to watch him in college. Really a scary thought for opponents. When you think about Travis Etienne being better than he was last season and the year before. Yeah. And really the story of this game besides Trevor Lawrence and Etienne was the Clemson defense because Miami finished with barely 200 yards rushing uh, 200 yards of total offense, 121 rushing 89 yards passing, and they just couldn't move the ball. Uh, you, you know, the, the matchup that we were looking at was the Clemson was Trevor Lawrence and the Clemson offense against the Miami hurricane defense. And really the Miami hurricane defense didn't do too badly. They just shot themselves in the foot. I mean, you said that, you know, Lawrence got hit a lot. They also stopped Lawrence early on. But if you remember the one play where it looked like they had a third and five or whatever it was 
Quincy Roach uh, made a nice interception on the ball, uh, or at least it was a pass deflection, um, but then got called for offsides, which gave Clemson the first down. And it seemed like every time the Miami defense had the Clemson offense stopped on third down, they would get a stupid penalty, which allowed Clemson to keep the ball, move the chains, and score. So, I mean, the, the score, in my opinion, was a little bit deceiving, 42-17, to because I thought Miami – was in the game a, a, a little better, a little bit more than that, but they, they shot themselves uh, basically in the foot. They got a lot of pressure up the field. Uh, I mentioned uh, Quincy Roach. The problem, the thing about Quincy Roach was I gave him a mid-round grade. Scouts gave him a free agent grade. The question about Quincy Roach is where is he going to play at the next level? He's a 265-pound defensive end who really doesn't run super fast. I think Miami's doing a great job using him, uh, the Hurricanes. He comes out of a three-point stance. He occasionally stands over tackle. He rushes the edge. He drops back off the line of scrimmage. I think he's going to be a real good situational player at the next level, and likely in a 3-4, uh, which lines up uh, four defensive linemen on, on occasion. I thought Jalen Phillips got a lot of pressure up the field. I didn't think Miami's defense played badly in the game. The problem is when they had Clemson stopped, they shot themselves in the foot and basically allowed Clemson to keep the ball and keep the chains moving. Yeah, this was a pretty close game for 40 minutes or so. Clemson really started to put it away in the third quarter. But, I mean, you had Trevor Lawrence in the game with fewer than five minutes to play in the fourth quarter. Um, Clemson hasn't had to do that a lot this year, and you would assume the hits that he was taking, they'd want to get him out a little sooner if they could, but they still felt, even at 35-17, that they needed to go down, score one more touchdown, and really seal the game. Um, so, as you said, yeah, the score kind of inflated a bit by the end. Um, but I did want to talk about Quincy Roach a little bit because you mentioned he's only 265 pounds and, and that played against him a little bit at times against Jackson Carmen, uh, who's more of a run blocker uh, than a pass protector. Uh, but, you know, third and short runs and a lot of other plays, he was kind of manhandled at times, but he was also getting the edge against Carmen, which, you know, he should be as a smaller guy against Carmen. Again, who's you know somewhat of a waist bender. He's not really a guy who's going to move around that well. Um, but, you know, Roach showed a lot, but in his very specific and very kind of niche role that you mentioned he's going to have to play at the NFL level, he's not the kind of guy that you're just going to line up, especially in a four-man line, um, you know, that is going to be able to hold up at the point against the run. Well, that's why Roach is probably going to be a last-day pick, a late-round pick, unless uh, he, he pops off some great workouts before the draft, and he's going to be a situational player at the next level. Meanwhile, Jackson Carmen is really moving up draft boards and he's likely a second day pick. So, but again, you know, uh, the bottom line was I thought Miami played the defense played reasonably well, except for their own self-inflicted wounds. Now in what seems like a weekly occurrence and rightfully so we will head to the sec where KJ Costello really melted down in a 24 2 loss to Kentucky for Mississippi state. Yes. The defense scored more points than Costello's offense just had 232 yards on 55 pass attempts, four interceptions. He's even benched at one point for freshman Will Rogers. Eventually re-entered the game, but clock really has to be ticking here uh, for Costello and Mike Leach. Threw numerous passes up for grabs that weren't even intercepted, so he could have had even worse numbers. No zip on his sideline passes. Ball just really wasn't coming out of his hand very well. He's throwing into double coverage, even triple coverage. At times, he was consistently sped up in his decision-making process by pressure. Just really a total disaster right now. One of his picks actually went to defensive end Josh Pascal, who we talked about last week. 
It was almost returned for a touchdown. I think it was 76 yards. Just one tackle, though, for Pascal. But he was in the backfield all day, even on three-man rushes against double teams. He's a powerful dude, but he's also a pretty decent athlete. Just really hasn't been able to turn those traits into statistical production as a pass rusher. I I mean, Costello's draft stock is on a straight shot, straight shot uh, south. I, I mean, he looked terrible. The picks aside, and the picks were disastrous. I, I mean, he's way off the mark on his throws. Uh, he looks a fraction of what he was at Stanford. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like he's a third-string quarterback that's coming off the bench, and he's the starter. And you got to wonder how long before he's benched for good. By Mike Leach. I said that during the first week of the season, even though they beat LSU, he was just turning the ball over too much. And now we're seeing seeing him turn the ball over not only a ton of times, but he's way off the mark uh, with, with his accuracy. And, and like you said, I mean, Pascal intercepted that pass, kind of rumbled down the field, didn't get into the end zone. Uh, they did score a defensive uh, touchdown later, although it wasn't uh, Costello who threw the uh through the interception. But the big story here is Costello, who came into the season graded as a fourth round pick, a guy that scouts thought could uh, move into the third round. You're looking at like a six, a six round pick right now, six touchdowns to nine interceptions. Granted, you know, learning the new offense, learning that Mike Leach offense is a bit of a, uh, is a, is a pretty big job. It's a work in progress, but he's just playing awful football. And, you know, unless somehow he goes to the senior bowl and has a great week of, of, uh, of practice, uh, Costello is going to go deep, deep into the draft. Quick shout out to you, Tony uh, Keaton Upshaw. Your, I believe he was yeah. your top ranked Kentucky uh, prospect heading into the season, the backup tight end, just two catches all year. But in this one had a 12 yard touchdown catch. You can definitely see when you look at him, the length and the frame to at the very least be an effective red zone target. Uh, probably not in the cards for him this year to have much of a season, but you never know what could happen, uh, what could happen next year and, and what he might develop into. Tremendous upside. I, I think part of that is because Kentucky just doesn't have a lot of good prospects uh, on their depth chart or on their roster. I spoke, I was speaking with somebody who's in uh, the SEC area today, and we were talking about different teams and prospects. And Kentucky is basically fifth, sixth, and seventh round type guys. Uh, so I, I think part of the fact that Keaton Upshaw was my number one prospect from Kentucky going into the season was what, number one, they really don't have a lot there, a lot of next level talent. And number two, like you said, you know, you see the flashes of Keaton Upshaw last year. You saw it you Saturday night. I saw it last year as a redshirt freshman. I'm projecting what it can be down the road. Now he's got to get from that, from point A where he is now to that point to, to really uh, develop into a player, but he has a lot of potential. You can always dream on that upside, Tony. And we'll stay in the SEC here, but we'll move away from the quarterbacks and we'll move to those who protect them. Tennessee beat up by Georgia, 44-21. Not really a surprising result, but what was a bit surprising to me is that Trey Smith wasn't truly dominant against a pair of third-day defensive tackles for Georgia, Devontae Wyatt and Jordan Davis. Neither got to the quarterback in this game, but that's kind of standard with their skill sets. Smith did show solid anchor versus power, good extension, controlled opponents. Um, you know, at times he would have one arm on one player, one arm on another, taking care of two defenders at once. So you could definitely see a lot of p- good things with Smith. But I also feel like he found himself off balance several times. Uh, at one point, Davis just threw him down to the ground. Saw a little waist bending from him as well. And obviously, some of these are, are minor things that can be fixed. 
Um, but I thought Wyatt and Davis both enjoyed solid games against Smith and some of the other guys. But moving back here to Trey Smith, Tony, A, do you agree with my assessment of his play? And B, shouldn't he be really like thoroughly, without a doubt, dominating guys like Wyatt and Davis if he's a potential first-round guard that isn't known for his movement skills? Well, it's not that he's just a first-round guard. Smith was the highest-rated senior prospect, regardless of position, by many of the scouts who do the preseason grading for the league. So he was, he was bar none ahead of all the other seniors. And I agree with you. There's nothing about his game that's really exciting. I mean, when you hear a guy, uh, an offensive, interior offensive lineman, that is rated as the top prospect, uh, senior prospect in the nation, you know, you think of someone like Quentin Nelson, who did come out as an underclassman, but you think of that type of player. And Smith couldn't be any, any further from Nelson uh, than you could imagine. I mean, he's a very good small area guy. He's got a great lineman's build. He's got a thick lower body. He's strong. He works hard, but he's not overly athletic. You can't use him in his own blocking system. He doesn't adjust all that well. I thought that Davis hammered him uh, uh, more times than not. I, I mean, Davis absolutely got the better of him. And Davis right now is considered maybe a second day selection. And Davis is just coming into his own. So, you know, and again, I specifically keyed on these matchups and there was just nothing about Smith that really excited me. I didn't see a first round guard. I saw a guy that's at best top half of round two. I think he's a guy that's scheme specific. Like I said, you're not going to use him in his own blocking scheme. You're not going to use him in motion. Maybe he can play some right tackle for you. But really, I, I mean, overall, I thought the Georgia guys got the better of him. I thought Davis hammered him. And, you know, if you didn't know better and you hadn't watched any film on the on Smith in the past and you said, hey, listen, this is the guy that NFL scouts graded as the top senior prospect in the land. And you watch that game. You would think that the rest of the senior class is beyond awful. We talked last week about Auburn going up against Georgia and Seth Williams kind of struggling uh, with the defensive secondary. Now, a lot of those guys are potential second day picks, but also just the mismatch is going to affect a wide receiver like Seth Williams more than it should affect a guy like Trey Smith, even if his team is outmatched. He should still be able to win his individual battles on the inside. It's not like, oh, well, the team caved around him and struggled, so Trey Smith's going to struggle. No, that's, that's not how it works with guards. They win their individual matchup. Yes, the offensive line has to work together, but it's just not the same type of situation. And, and yeah, I mean, a lot of what I saw, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're in lockstep with me because, I, I mean, I see some concerns here uh, with Trey Smith compared to what scouts have been saying about him and how they had graded him entering the year. It's not even a, a, you know, a matchup where one guy is bigger than the other. I mean, because Smith is much bigger than Wyatt and he's as big as Davis. And like I said, scouts like Davis, but they're liking him as a second day uh, selection, Jordan Davis of Georgia, uh, because he keeps improving. And, you know, Smith is considered by most accounts as a mid for, or was considered as, as a mid first round pick coming into the season. Now I'll take a quick look at one small school matchup from week six, Marshall rolled rest Marshall rolled Western Kentucky 38 to 14 left tackle. Josh ball again, impressive in a big matchup for him against the Hilltoppers, D'Angelo Malone. Now Malone did have seven tackles and one for a loss, but ball anchored effectively against both Malone and Juwan Jones on the other end in pass protection. 
who's a people mover in the run game, effective at the second level, really good job violently finishing blocks and making sure to play into the whistle. So, so far in all the times we've been watching Paul, I've been very impressed with him. And Malone, when he wasn't going up against Josh Ball, he was disruptive, showed some nice bend around the edge, uses his hands very well to make opponents pay when they bend at the waist or overcommit outside or inside. Malone takes advantage of the opportunities that he's given, but Ball really just didn't give him any to exploit when they were matched up one-on-one. Ball was terrific. And that one tackle for a loss that you mentioned was actually a, uh, uh, should have been a penalty on Malone. I watched that play. Uh, Ball was furious after the snap. They showed the replay. Malone didn't just get a hand to the face. He grabbed on the Ball's face mask and kind of twisted his helmet. And the ref never threw the flag, which he should have. But Ball, you know, we said this a couple of times. He's graded as a, coming in the season, graded as a, Mid-day three pick, understandable because he was not a consistent starter last year at Marshall, was a guy who was rotated into the lineup because they had two established starters. And if he had a big season this year at left tackle, there was a possibility if everything off the field checks off for him, he was going to jump. He could potentially jump in the second day. And I absolutely think that it's headed in that direction. You mentioned Malone. Malone's a real good player. He's feisty. He's explosive. He doesn't back down to a challenge. I think the problem is, He's a bit light for an edge rusher, and he's not going to be able to do that at the next level, although he shows the ability to make plays in space to drop off the line of scrimmage. But Ball is just just is more impressive. We talked about Jordan Davis of Georgia playing better, uh, getting better this season. Uh, Ball has absolutely elevated his game, and he's a lo- long, tall offensive lineman. He shows the ability to bend his knees. The ability just shows the ability to get out on the second level and block in motion. you got to be very impressed, and he's one of those guys – that I think if he continues to play, he's going to leave his senior season with much higher draft grades. And then if he goes to the senior ball and has a good week of practices, especially in those one-on-ones, your left tackle, you can do that. Your, your draft stock is going to skyrocket. And I think that's a possibility for ball. Yeah, certainly him and Davis, two of the bigger risers of the first month, month and a half of the season so far. Now for our preview section, we're going to switch it up a bit this week. Instead of covering four or so different games, we're going to cover one matchup and several matchups within that matchup. And now we always say in our summer previews that there are some teams that we can just talk about for an entire episode. Well, here's a little less than half an episode dedicated to two teams, number two, Alabama, and number three, Georgia. SEC supremacy on the line, playoff implications as well. Obviously, we've discussed the Georgia defense several times already, including today. So much NFL draft intrigue with them against Alabama's offense. And we'll start with two matchups in the trenches. The high wattage one, is Alabama left tackle Alex Leatherwood against Georgia linebacker, edge rusher Aziz Ojolari, who usually does play with his hand in the dirt over tackle, so we could see these two matched up more often than not. Already three sacks for Ojolari in 2020 after just five and a half last season, like Travis Etienne earlier and Josh Ball and Jordan Davis, very much improved this season. Bend, flexibility, balance around the edge. He has it all, flashes power as well, a good motor, Leatherwood, a pass-protecting left tackle who slides out to the edge well, could potentially slow down Ojolari that way. But we've also seen Ojolari with plenty of counter moves this year. This should really be a fun matchup. Yeah, I, I mean, Ojolari was a guy off of his redshirt freshman season tape of 2019. I graded as a second-day pick. I was so impressed by him. The athleticism, the explosion. He's strong for a size. He probably goes about 235 pounds, but he's a guy who – 
basically holds the point. He's got no issue holding the point against uh, against opponents. He slides off blocks. He gets out laterally, and he just is being playing better and better each week this season, and is moving up draft boards. And again, as I said, I spoke with somebody earlier today, and they and we were talking about him, and they said that they think what's going to happen is, while he's not thinking about the draft now. When he, when it, all of a sudden January comes around and he gets his grades, and those grades are very likely to be top forty grades uh, once he uh, once he gets it back from from scouts, very good chance he enters the draft and becomes uh, a top thirty two selection, especially if he keeps playing at the rate he's going because he's showing great improvement. He's just going to get better as he physically matures over time. Time not being the season, but time being over the. Uh, over the course of the next couple of years, he reminds me for better or worse of Leonard Floyd, who was a, a top 10 pick, uh, was taken by the bears with the ninth selection in 2016. The bears jumped over the giants. Now Leonard Floyd hasn't had the NFL career that mo- most people expected, but what I'm told about old is he's a me- much nastier version of Leonard Floyd, which you need na- at that sort of position. Uh, he's a guy, I think Ojalari I'm talking about who can play at defensive end and four man front, Stand over tackle. As far as Leatherwood's concerned, I've always liked Leatherwood a lot. He's been graded anywhere from scouts from mid first round to the second round. I think he's a much more natural version at left tackle than Jedrick Willis, who was top 10 pick last year by the Cleveland Browns, is now playing left tackle and doing a a decent job for it with Cleveland. But I think Leatherwood is a much more natural left tackle, better footwork much more, much better capacity sliding out off the edge. Uh, a guy who's got a high upside, doesn't have great length, only comes in about six, four and a half, but relatively athletic. It's going to be a great matchup to watch uh, Saturday night. We talked about Devonte Wyatt and Jordan Davis earlier on the show. We talked about them last week as well. And, and here we are again, this time they're going up against Alabama center, Landon Dickerson, one of the top pivots in the nation an injury-marred Florida State career for Dickerson, but he grad-transferred to Alabama before last year and has been healthy the last two seasons for the Tide. Not a great athlete, but he's tough, he's physical, he's smart. Kind of a like-for-like type of matchup for him against Wyatt and Davis, who aren't really overwhelming athletically either on the inside this week. Tony, we've been talking about Davis a lot, Wyatt a little bit. What do you see from this trio and what do you expect from them on Saturday? I like Dickerson. I think he's off to kind of a, a, a slow start this year. Uh, he's not the, mo- the niftiest guy. He's not the most nimble guy, which is why I think that Devontae White could exploit him at times. But when you look at uh, Dickerson, I think he's a better version of Ross Piercebacher, who's playing in the league right now, who was taken in the fifth round by the uh, Washington Redskins, who's ha- has got, had a pretty solid NFL career. Uh, he's also probably a little bit better than Bradley Bozeman, let me start that again. Three, two, one. I think when you look at Dickerson or when I compare him to previous uh, uh, previous centers from Alabama, I think he's a slightly better than Bradley Bozeman, who has been starting for the Baltimore Ravens uh, for a long time now uh, at guard. And Dickerson has that sort of ability to play center or guard. He's a big, thick guy. The matchup against Davis is going to be interesting to watch. When he goes up against Jordan Davis, you know, we can compare it to the matchup uh, last week against Trey Smith to see how uh, how Dickerson does. Wyatt may have 
an advantage because he's so explosive off the snap and Dickerson struggles to adjust. But again, I, I think this is when you look at it from a head to head point of view, this is a real good opportunity for Dickerson to stop both the power of Davis or show he can, he's capable of stopping the power of Davis as well as the explosive agility of Wyatt. Yeah. And Dickerson did start four games at guard last year in his first year with Alabama, obviously he's a full-time center now, but does have that versatility. Like you said, we'll move on now to the skill positions and we're going to start with the passing game where Mac Jones, Devonte Smith and Jalen Waddle come in super hot against the Georgia secondary with several NFL corners and a good safety in Richard LeCount. Tyson Campbell, one of those corners, has been quite good this season. DJ Daniels, a potential top 45 pick, according to scouts. Both of these players were very physical when they matched up with Seth Williams in the Auburn game. Mark Webb and Eric Stokes can play a bit too. But Smith and Waddle are really different animals. Waddle's small, but ridiculous quickness and agility. There is a reason that he is averaging over 20 yards per catch as a super fast downfield threat. Smith on the year has eight more catches for fewer yards than Waddle, which speaks to his consistency. Also how he's being used in the Alabama offense. He's got solid size, but he can also break big plays. Just really hasn't had to as much this year with Waddle and John Mechie doing just that. So it seems like Smith and Waddle are a bit of a mismatch for Georgia's corners. What are you looking for here, Tony? Well, first of all, you got to love the way Mac Jones and Waddle have shown incredible improvement this year. I mean, because there are, Mac Jones has really taken uh, that Alabama offense or taken hold of that Alabama offense, and he is without a doubt the leader. And from an NFL point of view, he's improved his draft stock significantly. And, and people, it, it's almost like the team hasn't missed a beat uh, this year with, with, with Tua not being the starting quarterback, although Tua wasn't the starting quarterback at the end of last year. And Waddle has really elevated his game. Uh, since moving from the number four receiver to the number two spot. So, and Devonta Smith, in my opinion, is he doesn't have the big playability of Waddle, but he's a much more polished version. He's a better route runner. He's a better underneath receiver. He's got more consistent hands. Now, when you look at Georgia, Georgia has three outstanding cornerbacks in Tyson Campbell, Davis Daniel, Eric Stokes. I have third round grades on all of them. There are some scouts who have Davis Daniel, who's the only senior of that bunch graded as a potential second round pick. And then you've got to throw in the safety, Richard LeCount, who played well last week against uh, Tennessee plays played well during the beginning part of the season. I have him as a fourth rounder. There are some scouts that have him as a late third rounder. So that is going to be an incredible matchup. Those three corners, uh, one who's going to play Nicola times from Georgia with LeCount, their safety against Jones as well. Jones throwing the ball to Devonta Smith and Jalen Waddle. That is something that scouts are going to really keep a close eye on. Now go from the air to the ground for our final preview of this game where Najee Harris is just unbelievable. 10 touchdowns rushing through three games, impossible to bring down on first contact, athletic enough to be effective as more than just a between the tackles type of runner as well. He can catch the ball well. He holds up in pass protection, just the entire package of what you want in a feature back. Georgia linebacker Monty Rice is the guy that might be tasked with chasing Harris around all game. Takes on blocks to get to the ball. He can get to the sidelines. He's a good open field tackler. He can make plays on the ball in coverage and as a pass rusher. One key for Rice, too, is that he does not over-pursue plays. He is a very disciplined, gap-aware linebacker, which is a necessary thing against a back like Harris running behind this Alabama offensive line. The thing about Monty Rice is he's going to be able to get to the point to meet Najee Harris 
does he bring him down at the point or does he drag him down? Because Harris is a big, powerful guy that's got exciting athleticism and agility as far as I'm concerned. He's a guy who can turn the perimeter and then turns it upfield. In my opinion, he's just an incredibly underrated back. He can run on the inside. He can turn the corner. He's a good pass catcher out of the backfield, does the little things well. I think he's one of these guys, Najee Harris, who he's a first-round prospect, but because he's a running back, he's probably going to go in the second round. The question for Rice is, Rice is also a second-hit player, had a real good game two weeks ago uh, for George. Also played well against Tennessee last week, I should say. Uh, but he's got great sideline-to-sideline -side speed. Uh, he gets depth on his pass drops. The thing about it is, is, you know, he's not a real big stout guy. How is he going to stack up against the run and against Najee Harris? Yeah, I mean, it's not too often where you have a running back like Najee Harris and a linebacker like Monty Rice weighing in kind of in that same range. And, and they both do in that kind of 230 or so pound range. Tony, you probably have more official weights than I do. But I mean, these guys are similar size. So usually the linebacker has, say, a 20 to 25 uh, pound advantage, which helps them be able to hold up against the running backs. That's not the case here with Rice and Harris. So as you said, be interesting to see if he can stop him in his tracks, which I tend to doubt, or if he's going to have to drag him down, which he's probably going to have to do that and kind of grab onto his ankles and, and just hope he can keep him to the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a, a good game. This is going to be a fun game. Let's hope they play the game because, like I said, uh, at the time uh, Chris and I were taping, the news was breaking that uh, Nick Saban, the head coach from Alabama, tested positive uh, for COVID, he's going to get retested to make sure that that was in fact not a false positive and all the players are going to be tested. Uh, so, you know, we got to cross our fingers, obviously that everyone's healthy and, and that there were not a lot of positives. So everyone can play on the field. And, you, you know, this is a game, George, Alabama, that is usually reserved for the SEC title game. These guys usually don't play during the regular season. And it's only because of the situation with COVID-19 and the rearrangement of the schedules that we're getting this game during the regular season, a game that, you know, a matchup that we could see actually see again in the sec championship game, especially the way that uh, LSU was falling off. And now Florida's having their problems. Florida lost the game last week against Texas A&M. So this may be the first of two matchups between Alabama and Georgia that Chris and I are breaking down. And that's it for the 157th episode of the draft analyst presented by the belief sports podcast network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter. We'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week to take stock on that big Alabama-Georgia matchup, as Tony said, as long as it happens. But until then, for Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. Good night. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.